When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's up? It's Jenny LSQ. Thanks so much for pressing play on episode 44 of the LSQ podcast. And those letters are just the phonetic approximation of my last name, nothing too fancy. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at Jenny LSQ. And I'm so excited to share with you a conversation with an artist I admire greatly, Meryl Garbus of Tune Yards. We met up here in LA at the end of January, so pre-quarantine. Um, when Tune Yards were here playing a one-off show. But as you'll hear Merrill mention, there is some new Tune Yards music coming together that might even arrive later this year. So we'll talk about that and much more. Let's go. Check one, check two. I am talking. <laughs> I was up really late with those singers, hilarious singers last night. So what was the sort of occasion for coming in to do this kind of one-off show? The occasion was... It's a showtime? It was, it's just a show, you know, a gig. Yeah. A but gig where, am a I, gig. where am I finding you in terms of, like, I hate to put it in the, in the terminology no, no. of album cycle shit, but, like, yeah. what, is the, what, what have you been working on lately and where are you in sort of tune yards? That's a good headspace? question. In the cycle, it feels like the end of the world cycle, so it doesn't, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, what the hell are we doing cycling like this when there's warm water under the largest glacier in Antarctica? Or what, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, what are we doing? Um, but to answer your question, um, we are right, you know, we're about to finish recording another album. So we're in the, in the, you know, almost mixing phase, which means, um, but it's, you know, it's January. Oh my God. It's February. Happy February. February. It's February of of the year 2020 in the United States. So like who wants to release a record in, you know, October of, (laughs) Oh God, good point. You know what I mean? And at the same time, people need music and, and stuff. Maybe do they? And we need some relief from everything else, but I don't know. So, um, so in my mind, what was cool about last night was that it made no sense. We, but I mean, that was probably the most work I've ever put into one single show in terms of 11 piece choir, two other singers on stage with us, flag, silk waivers, um, an intense, you know, lighting package anyway it was really fun but it had nothing it was more just for the experiment oh and we like audience interaction stuff which I really had been wanting to try but it didn't make any it wasn't like and this is our show that we'll be touring and so everyone can you know it was just like no it's tonight and also just to see why I mean I I want to know what I want to know how what the power of live performance and of music is in general right now like what are what are the parameters what are the how far can we I mean really my question was how do we um can releasing an album be part of building movement Mm -hmm. that's really my question what was the audience interaction component um when the audience entered the lobby they were there were tables and they were asked to answer questions that that we had on cards and so the questions were um, describe a profound experience you have had with plants. Mm. One was describe an ex- profound experience you've had with art. And then there were two transforming questions. How are you transforming and how are you transforming the world? Seems really hokey when I say it like that, but it was really interesting what, I mean, the the array you know the spectrum of the answers that we got and then the idea was I would get those cards before our set which I did and then sort through a bunch 
Jason and Laura helped me sort through. And then I read them like imp- in an improvised way on stage, just kind of choosing wow, cool. timing for things. And, um, and, and then the other part of the audience interaction was just singing. Like they were asked to sing and, right. and be, and they did sing in three part harmony, which is something that I wasn't sure could happen. So just these ways of trying to get, get away from, you're there sitting, watching a show and just kind of like being entertained versus um, we're doing something here together, which, you know, two yard shows have always, I've always tried to do that, but maybe it's becoming more important to me now to understand like what, what's the, what's the use of a show? <clears throat> it's like that book, um, Michael Azarad's book, the, our bank be your life. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how a culture, like how does a, a band, how can a band develop a culture that's not just compelling to fans, but that, but that provides, um, my friend Jess George, I think she's, she called it like my political home. Like that, that I think I know I am searching for, I'm searching a lot these days. Like who, who has an answer that seems compelling Mm -hmm. (laughs) and I don't claim to have any answers, but, but like, what if, what if we could provide some kind of home for people to gather with each other and kind of say, um, well, we're all here, you know, for, for a lot of different reasons, but we're finding that this, that this music or this band's culture is, is compelling enough to bring us here. And that provides some kind of unifying force. And do you, I mean, have you had that relationship with artists that you're a fan of? You know, are there, mm. are there artists that you can think of who are that for you or have been that when you were a kid? Or That's a really good question. Yeah, I mean, I feel like Ani DeFranco, you know, when I was in high school, that was like the first woman with a shaved head I ever saw probably and the first woman talking about having relationships with other women um and the first woman frankly talking about being how fucked it is to be a woman in the world and i hadn't because she was saying those things then when we would go to shows you'd be like oh it's a bunch of like queer women with shaved heads you know like it was just like a joyful party of feeling of feeling safe really Mm -hmm. and feeling yeah feeling at home and and I think what the mistake, if there's a mistake of the 90s, I'm sure there's plenty of mistakes of the, oh boy. <laughs> of the 90s, but that we put that on one person instead of seeing that the culture that's being built is the, is the people who are going to the shows. It's yeah. not just this one person, ma- magnificent as she is. And uh, it's, you know, that's... And same with, you know, think of Lauren Hill. Think of all these particularly women that get you know we put so much on them that they have to be they have to know it all instead of well what if it's actually what's being created at the shows and what and what's being created by um yeah by I mean yeah and it's interesting because Ani obviously started her own label she's like in a category Mm -hmm. unto herself Mm -hmm. and I'm sure in her memoir she writes about this I haven't read it yet but you know, I, I'm imagining that was in part a decision because she, you know, got rejected by labels or there wasn't the, sure. the sense that it would be a successful bid. Mm-mm. You know, I think one of the big mistakes of the 90s slash music industry in general is not recognizing people like that and instead trying to make trying to make everyone pass as the same, yep. you know. Totally. And you think about an example from the 90s like Fiona Apple who... Mm-hmm because she was so young and signed to a major label right out of the gate, you know, they did everything they could to present her as this certain kind of like, you know, barely legal, whatever. And in reality, we, we know pretty quickly we, you know, she, there's no reigning in that spirit Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. she made it clear who she really is. And it's like, and then you can, but I think, you know, when you get the industry gets involved, they like, try and make everything the same instead yep. of letting it be different. And the difference is what I think maybe draws in the kind of community you're talking about where they're totally. like, this is my, this is my right. artist or whatever. Right. And I think, I mean, as another example, a band like Fish, for instance, where they, they're, they don't, they rely on their, I mean, they have 
their own thing going on. Yeah. <laughs> they rely on their own fans. My Morning Jacket, I would say, is another band where that the fans, um, uh, you know, know, knowing a little bit about how their fan their fans like or organize with each other to do charitable work, to do um, philanthropic work. Wow. That cool. is, it's not the band telling them what to do. This is what I, I'm, I'm hearing that, you know, secondhand kind of, but mm-hmm. like that, that's my understanding is that bands, and, and I would say both of those bands maybe struggle to, to win that mainstream industry, mm-hmm. um, whatever that is. <laughs> acknowledgement. Yeah, acknowledgement. Right. I mean, now Fish, I think is like, you know, Rolling Stone will like, you know, holds them up as rock gods now, but like for decades, they were like that weird band, yeah. that weird jam band. Yeah. Um, but I think completely that that and and maybe it's not just the the music industry, but maybe that's probably that is capitalism. <laughs> that capitalism is the thing that says, okay, wait, we have a marketable thing, we we have a safe bet. So now let's make everybody that because we know that's what sells. Versus that versus like the humanity, <laughs> yeah, of musicians, you know, who are who are totally different and who who come to music you know, for very different reasons. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's fucked. Basically, it's (laughs) fucked. Yeah. When you started playing music and doing it as a thing that you were going to focus efforts on to the exclusion of other stuff you might do with your time, did you have any sense then that music would be something that would become this much of your world or that it would... Mm. Were you... Was it always... Were you always drawn to it in a way that felt like this is the most important thing for me? I think, yeah, even even when um, I don't think I think for a really long time, because my parents are both musicians, um, my my mom professionally and my dad, um, I mean, I guess I would say semi-professionally at certain points, but but they that was what they did. And so I chose theater as the thing that I did. And I think for a long time, I rejected music as a career because I didn't want to teach like my mom does. And, um, and I didn't, you know, it just, they, they played folk music with their friends, uh, and had that, a a rich community of that. But I, it's like, you, are you going to make money playing fiddle tunes on, you know, very few people make money, you know, I didn't see that as a, career somehow I thought theater was going to be the thing you know but (laughs) and not just theater but like weird ensemble based theater in Vermont you know I was like that's where you know that's where I'm gonna make my (laughs) mark but um but I think I just until I was until I was so depressed and and in my early 20s and just couldn't fathom doing anything else except for the one thing that made me happy, which was music. I don't think that I, I don't think I ever would have been like, music's going to be my life and I'm going to have a successful band and make a living this way. It was just, it was literally just because it was the only thing that made me want to still be on the planet. And so that it wasn't like an option. It wasn't like a career choice. It was just like, this is the, the thing I can do. And I never would have imagined that this would be my life, that we'd be in some fancy hotel you know, you asking me questions like I'm an important person, you know, like that did not, I was like, if I can, uh, not be living in my car and, you know, be playing the ukulele, that'd be awesome. <laughs> yeah. And what were the earliest like music things that you were drawn to? What was, what did, what was the first music you loved? Like earlier, early, early, early. Mm. Um, it gave you a special feeling. Uh, well, my mom played a lot of Bach when I was probably in utero. Right. <laughs> um, so I think I think there's always and, and you know my dad was playing, I don't know Ricky Skaggs, Steely Dan, lots lots of bluegrass, lots of great music, the Beatles. I mean, of course we had we had a lot of, especially early Beatles when I was a kid. The the compil the blue and red compilations oh, yeah. those are my favorite favorites as a kid. Um, but we had everything, and and also I grew up going to early music camp with my mom, 
she plays the harpsichord. And so um, in terms of like early, the kind of musical moments where you're tingling all over and you just kind of want like a, you know, maybe what we would now call ASMR uh-huh. <laughs> experiences with music. Um, a lot of those were in the woods of Massachusetts listening to like recorder ensembles and viola da gamba uh, yeah. ensembles. So I was exposed to, to a lot that a lot that other people are not mm-hmm. really young and I and also not just recorded music but a lot of live music around all the time. a lot of you know folk folk instruments and and um, gatherings that way. Uh, what were the first things that felt like your music that you were like had to chase them? Um, Michael Jackson. <laughs> I mean, in terms of like when when I was like, oh, this is my music, not my parents' music. Yeah. It was like listening to to when we moved to Connecticut and and list, I finally had my own radio mm-hmm. and my own little attic space <laughs> where I would hide. It was it was um, all the stuff that was on. New York radio in the late 80s. Right. Like all, you know, <laughs> yeah, well, I know. drum machines oh, like yeah. I, we'd never heard before. You know, just these like really, and my parents, I just don't, I think that was where I was like, oh, I am a child of the 80s, you know. Um, <laughs> my parents had no, uh, they Well, just, that's too around when they launched, I remember too, when they launched Z100. I was going to say. Z- that was major. Z100. Z100 was, was major. Huge. Where And I, because I don't remember life before Z100, but I remember when it started, yeah. it was just like, whoa, this is for the kids. Because where did you grow up? In Queens, New York. Okay. Yeah. So how did, going back to Baby Merrill, how did you go from listening to Z100 to listening to Ani DeFranco? <laughs> Shoot. Do I remember? Did you have a friend or someone who kind of told you about a world of music outside of that? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Um, I had my folk music friends. I was working at that that same camp that I went to as a child. I started volunteering there when I was probably 15, 16. And, and we would go to, like, folk festivals during the year together. Then, like, NEFA, the New England Folk blah 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 mm-hmm. alliance and we would go and wear you know flowy 90 skirts and uh <laughs> <laughs> and do contra dancing and then and that was a world in which um because it again at that time like you're saying there was how how did you discover music and a lot of it uh, most of it was just your friends being like have you heard this buying buying you a cd so especially with Ani DeFranco um and I think I did read her memoir uh and she's talking about how, I mean, yeah, it was just, it was just, you know, friends telling friends because other, she didn't have major label distribution. So she was selling a lot of albums just by word of mouth. That's how, that's how different it was really, yeah. because it was notable enough to be like, <gasps> have you heard, you know, yeah. have you heard this music? I know it's, it is funny that like, you know, what I, my memories sometimes involve the internet when the internet didn't exist but you think about yeah. an artist like that and how I mean even more recently uh, like not that long ago the band Clap Your Hands Say Yeah mm-hmm. their first album was not on a label and they managed to sell like 60,000 copies of wow. it now there's internet then but it wasn't real and they were well received but it wasn't yeah. you know it wasn't the kind of e-commerce you can imagine now just have them wow. mailing CDs to record stores around the country to the tune of 60,000 of those. It's, it's crazy. That's, but it's a good reminder that, like, that's what virality is, mm, too, yeah. you know? Yeah. It's like, right. it's not just, like, accepting what's been uh, positioned to be viral, and so you have no. no choice because you're like, well, this is the thing. I guess everyone's sharing this, you know? Yeah. Which actually, I mean, I don't know you. How long have you been out here in LA? I just do winters here. Actually, I'm a snowbird. Ah, I wonder. <laughs> Good for you. Yeah. So you've caught me here in the winter a couple cool. of times. Yeah. Um, I that seems like a great survival mechanism. Oh, it's, it's a system. Yeah, because I because I I don't know I. This place scares me, and I think it's be, <laughs> I think part of it is because, because of that 
seeking virality, good word, but it but in a, like an empty shell way. Mm. Seeking it for its own sake. I mean, for the sake yeah. of like, let's like let's crack the system and figure out how to make everybody, you know, really love this song that's actually terrible. Right. Like that happens a lot. I mean, and and I don't know. I have my own taste, so maybe I just think certain things are terrible. But I don't understand um, a lot of what. I, like, does it even matter if something is so 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 popular? Um, if it's empty because because I guess that's back to our band could be your life you know as do I do I run out and buy the next Ana DeFranco album these days no and I love her but I don't but I have to admit that I don't do that however I I am a long-term fan well I will go back you know I'll go I'll go be like what's Ani doing these days you know um there is something she she's in my musical blood for sure like she's um someone that i will go back to versus something that was put there for me um i'm trying to think of like a candy song uh do you watch that show songland ever i don't uh it's a unusual songwriting tv show what sounds cool it it does it is and it's very like la um L.A. songwriting. Okay. Forgetting his name. Ryan Tedder. Okay. It's like Ryan Tedder show, basically. And they do groups and they have to write songs on certain topics or something. Or so, was... Well, songwriters come in, they present a song to an artist. So like the Jonas Brothers are the guests. Jersey. Um, Love the joke. <laughs> uh, Great guys. They're like, they, do you really know them? I do. I spent some time with them. Really? I was Can with them when see? Michael Jackson died. It was crazy. Whoa. Yeah. They seem actually like really they're nice so sweet, people, yeah. and they're really from Jersey. Right? They are. Yeah. Okay, cool. We are. I was talking to Tony, Tony Tone, who did Silks for our show last night. Tony Tone Nikolka. She she was she's from Jersey. I was born in Jersey. Anyway, and sometimes we ha- I, it's like the Jersey shame comes on, and then I'm like, wait a second. But uh, Jonas Brothers are like, we're looking for a new song for our album, and these three, you know newbie songwriters come out and perform their songs that they're uh, a song that they wrote yeah. uh, and trying to sell it to the Jonas Brothers actually and and Will I Am was one of the artists and he and it was you I mean I can't even give this away to you you have to watch this you have to watch that episode promise me <laughs> I will I will however For you listeners, feel I'm doing sort of a nose pinch <laughs> forehead press of cringy but also must see this immediately whatever you however whatever feelings are you had me at will i am you had me at will i am (laughs) but he's he's amazing it was amazing to see because i'm just you know i want to see behind the scenes you you listen to the radio and there's all this stuff but like someone as as generic as stuff might seem on the radio there are human beings working really really hard to make pop songs and you see that in this show and there is, of course, a playlist from the show. You know, they're, they're, those songs are streaming. They're like, and now at the end of the show, you're like, yeah, and right. you can hear the single, blah, 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 right? Um, it's all part of the, the whole marketing scheme. And uh, one of those Will I Am songs, at the time, I was like, this is, I, I'm going to listen to this song 18,000 times in a row. And I did. And then... I never wanted to hear it ever mm-hmm. again. You know, mm-hmm. that 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 to me is that different thing than going deep with an artist and really, I mean, how, I mean, we all have that, right? Like you would not be doing what you're doing, I presume, if you didn't have deep, profound moments with music, right? Oh, yeah. And, but also it, it, I find that I have that kind of thing sometimes too, where I go back to a record I listened to 18,000 times in 1996 or something and it doesn't do it, and I can't mm. really listen even, you know, yeah. where I'm just like, wow, this really hit me at that time. I mean, then other things that I still, you know, some of my most listened to albums are things I still listen to once a week, or like almost really? almost weekly, or at like least what? Uh, I mean, like, I really love the Postal Service album. Yeah. I listen to it all the time. Yeah. It's just like, if I'm not sure what I want to listen to, yeah, yeah. I might put that on because yeah. it still always works for me. Yeah. You know? Or even, like, I know Morrissey is deservingly canceled, but I still will listen to The Smiths and just be like, I just can always listen to it. Yeah. Or Dylan. Or, you know, certain yeah, things. Yeah. But there are so many that I've gone back to because I do a show that's like old school indie show. And mm-hmm. 
I'm like, ooh, I'm going to find that one whatever song. Um, yeah. And I, it's not that it's not still great, but it just does. I'm just like, oh, I really remember having a much more. Yeah. Or I listen to the album. I can't. I'm like, what was that one song? Right. What was it? I think it was this. And then I think of me crying next to my five CD changer. I'm like, remember for her what exactly. that song was. What was it? What meant so much? Um, there is. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, which I think is different. I think those to me, I'm trying to think of for me. Well, like we played last night with, with, uh, Via Farca Toure, mm. Ali Farca Toure's son. And I, I mean, I guess be, probably because I come from parents who are deservedly music snobs. You know, they they know good music mm-hmm. and they're really harsh critics. Yeah. <laughs> that I know what a deep, like, I will always go back to Ali Farquhar's music. That's deep, great music. Right. And great musicianship you know it's about musicianship i think at a certain point which which is um different than some of the stuff we're talking here which is kind of like the the cultural impact maybe of music or or well it's the magic you know sometimes there's magic and you're like i don't know why i fucking like this song it's not like anything i like but i've got a it's a banger or whatever the parlance of our times right versus things where you're just like yeah this is mass a master work yeah. it's, n- it's just is it just is yeah and i i'm finding those those are i mean for me it's like johnny clegg south african musician r.i.p and there's a specific like that it's just that album that i will go back to forevermore and it and it has cheesy 80 cents on it you know like to no one else might understand why i like that album but to me it's really deep music music musicality wise meaning you know like dylan i can i i have a specific relationship with bob dylan bob dylan and i have a specific was very but, precise <laughs> he doesn't know about it exactly yeah he's never met me doesn't know my name um but but the poetry right i mean it's deep enough so that you can keep finding oh yeah newness in it and that that also like that's the kind of music i want to be making i know i know what i'm saying about Ani DeFranco is probably what people are going to be saying about me or R.E.R. like oh in 2011 yeah i was really into junior and we wore face paint to shows wow i haven't heard like are they still a band you know like that <laughs> it's always going to happen that yeah. way i understand that um but but if I can be still making music that I that I believe in enough to think is that it's going to be worthwhile listening in decades to come, like that that's all I can ask for. I don't think I can ask for a career that spans these different like what's in vogue at the time. You know, right? I can't I can't be popular over over a year or two, <laughs> let alone over decades. You know what I mean? So what this moment that you describe where you're where you're you know in your early twenties and you sort of realize that like playing music is the only thing that keeps you wanting to keep be alive what did you decide to do with that i mean if that if that was a moment when you kind of had a realization what was that when you yeah decided to i've got to do that i've got to do something with this how did it evolve into into actually becoming a person who does music full time um I mean the the short the short story is I was doing a I was a puppeteer that was my gig and I as a puppeteer developed a solo puppet opera oh wow and I wrote a friend of mine friends of mine suggested that I use a soprano ukulele because um, my friend Circa said it was she said it sounds really creepy and I never I had never thought of ukulele that way that of the ability to to have it sound creepy and the puppet opera was about a, a mother selling her uh kid to the butcher for money wow a so, opera oh yeah exactly opera <laughs> <laughs> um and so the the music needed to be creepy and anyway so i decided that i liked the writing of the songs better than i you know more than the puppet part and then that uh summer there was a summer where I quit my puppeteering job and I went to work at Apple Farm, a music camp in New Jersey. Wonderful. And 
that's where I met Nate Brenner, my now mm. partner and in music and life, and um, met my friend Patrick Gregoire and uh, Suvi, who became um, the, the uh, what do you call that when you name something after a person? We, Patrick oh, right, the namesake, yeah. Yeah, so Patrick and I eventually, we started playing music together uh, at the end of that summer, and I was like, oh... Uh, how how about having a band with this wonderful person and these wonderful people and we started Sister Suvi and that was and then I started going back and forth to Montreal and Patrick was the person who said because it was the time at that point the mid 2000s Arcade Fire Wolf Parade it was like um, Canada you know between Montreal and Toronto yeah Canada was was like its own LA (laughs) of music industry success stories and it Patrick was was the one who was like no this is actually a viable option to make a living and I was like you kidding me no way um but but we just you know that that was how I got John into trying to make a living doing it I I was otherwise just um trying to do it as much as possible and write songs and and express myself once that you way. kind of made that decision, though, that you, you know, sort of realizing, like, no, this, doing this makes me feel better, I need to do more of this, and then you started doing more of it, did you start to feel better? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because there's nothing like screaming your guts out on stage to just, like, let it all out. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's really, there's nothing that compares I mean, it must have that. been an exciting kind of must have been exciting to kind of shift from feeling that sort of like, oh, it's I, what else is there to being like, no, there's something. It's yeah. this thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it literally became, I mean, it literally became my reason for living. And, and now I understand, too, that in order to drive a band that, to a place where you are touring, recording, writing songs, I mean, it's like eight jobs in one we were booking, you know, we, we were driving ourselves. We were we were doing everything in the in that DIY band fashion, and so it's all consuming. I didn't, we didn't do anything but that for four years, basically. And then I added two years on top of that when when I Sister Suvi became, it it wasn't the outlet that I that I wanted for all of my songs, and so I started the looping pedal um, solo gig mm. thing. At around that same time and so I was writing I was just writing songs all the time I was like living off popcorn you know I was just do like doing the thing I would get like massively ill once a year or twice a year from from just like overworking mm. in that it and over touring and not eating properly and not sleeping properly but but that's you know I was I was doing that all the time and so it's almost as if they're there's not time, there's not as much time to be depressed. <laughs> right. And also I got, you know, I, I was a, I am a sugar addict. I got, I got off of that a bit. I got to a place where I, um, I, I was just in very, very bad health, poor health in my early twenties too. And I think, I think that again, the act of just like getting up on stage, you know, night after night and, um, and, and not being alone, at home with because what it used to be was like house sitting gigs and just like eating everybody eating you know these people out of house and home right. <laughs> alone so all of a sudden at night instead of being alone eating myself to death I was out with people and out in, in exciting um with with people who are really excited to be alive and that's that totally saved my life for sure and would I mean the earliest songs that you wrote? Do, you know, do you think there are elements of that in what you still do, or could, could you kind of recognize some of your songwriting instincts from from your earliest attempts? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think I notice now that there are um, those theatrical moments in in a lot of the what are now two yard songs, but um, but kind of constructing, um, how do I say that? Constructing um, surprise moments and 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 just moments in general. That instead of instead of conceiving of you know verse chorus, verse chorus bridge chorus or whatever. That that 
um, my puppet uh, mentors at Sandglass Theater, they they uh, would talk about building, creating a world, and and that's a different way. Like what you're doing is creating a world for the puppet. You're building so that the audience believes in the puppet. You you don't you don't try to make the puppet do stuff. You 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 allow the puppet to experience the world around it, and I totally do that with song. I mean, that's my, yeah, I feel like that's what songwriting is to me, is building a sonic world, building a world that might not make sense in a linear fashion, in a narrative fashion, lyrically, but that somehow it's it's building out a landscape of sorts that the listener gets to live in for a while. And I, I think that... Um, I just noted, I really, it was the song Hatari. Hatari was kind of, that was the first song where I was like, oh, this is what I want to do with my life. I don't want to be a pop band. I don't want to be um, any other kind of band. <laughs> I don't want to like teach music or learn music in this way. I want to do whatever this song is mm. doing. That's, this is how, this encapsulates what, how I feel about the world. And I didn't understand it necessarily, but there's a part, there's like a, you know, the part in the song, in that song where it stops and then it goes, there is a natural sound that wild things make when, <laughs> forgetting my own hand, I can't remember it. Oh my God. And you know, when you get like a blind spot yeah. in your brain, you're like, that's not yeah, coming back. That's no, not coming back. It's all right. It rumbles in the ground, garage, garage. We all fall down. Oh, gee, like whatever. Yeah. Anyway, that whatever I wrote there <laughs> was exactly what I meant. And the fact that the song stopped, uh, the fact that it went out of time, the fact that it was kind of like a spoken word thing in the middle of it, and the fact that um, everything was also wrong about the song. Like I'm, it, it evoked the feeling of being a white woman in Kenya. Um, like that's what I wanted from it. It just felt off and weird and wrong. And it just felt like, okay, that's, this is what I'm doing. And I would say that is what I have done. <laughs> We've basically been write, rewriting that song for the you know past 11 years or whatever it's been. Well, you've been identifying aspects of the thing that are also important to you because once you hit on the like, oh, I need to do this for survival and then I want to create an environment for the puppets and then, okay, this song is an example of how I do what I do and, and, the, and, you know, adding other levels of ambition to what, to what it is and having it be more reflective of a larger human experience than just mm -hmm. your experience. Right. I know, you know, we had a conversation remotely for the radio one time after you had gone and done that, the course that you took leading up to the last Tune Yards album, mm -hmm. which, you know, is an experience of trying to just expand, right. And make it, Mm -hmm. something more than what it was and more inclusive more mm -hmm. um so it, it's it seems like that's a thing you you've sort of every so often you set another goal for what the music can be mm. and as you said at the outset of this conversation now it's it's interesting that you mentioned creating a world for the puppets but we started with talking about making your band into a world for for the fans mm. you know they're the puppets who are moving around in the world of of your music, hmm. how do you? How, I nice. mean, wrapping it up, bringing it back around, bringing nice. it back around, nice. call back. <laughs> um, you know, because I know there's going to be. You've said that there's an. I don't want to make you t talk too much about an album that is mm. many months down the line, but I am curious a little bit about how how did you tackle, or what what are some of the ways that um, that you intend to do that to make the music m more of a world for people to feel they can live in and this challenge of writing about anything that people will hear in 2020. Yeah. Yeah. Um, those are all good questions. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you know what? I have to just confess that I'm have. I also have this, um, I have a vulnerability hangover uh, mornings after I've done a show. And so I was, I, like right before we met, I was like, shit, because it's, this is the hardest time for me usually. It's the morning after a show where I lose all faith 
in anything I've ever done. Like, and I felt great about the show last night, but it doesn't, it's like, it's just the fact that I put myself, I rip myself open that much, as cheesy as that sounds. Uh, the next morning, it's, it is, I mean, a friend of mine gave me that coin that gave me that term vulnerability hangover like it's too much and so I'm in like shame mode so when you ask that question I'm like well I don't know and I just better call it a hole because um <laughs> because I don't know what I'm doing <sighs> what we did last night and what I want what I wanted to build with the new songs were songs I've been asking myself the question what songs what songs are needed right now um what songs do people need? What words do they need? Um, and for a, for there, what's brewing in my head is, you know, do we source lyrics from people when they say these are the lyrics that I need? Um, do we create music that is simple that has simple enough harmony in it that people can learn songs and learn harmonies and sing together in an audience in harmony? That these these are the things that I'm um, mulling over. Uh, do you, and I think what I've come to in, in a lot of these ways is that there, is that I need to trust myself, actually. <laughs> uh, vulnerability hangover or no, that people are already finding meaning in the music that we make, um, that if I, so that if I trust myself and I trust my own sense of what I want from lyrics and what I want from music, that they're going to be, that's, that's really the only way I can do it. The other way is what song, what lyrics do you all want to hear? And people, you know, will generally be like, I need to hear, you know, there's a light at the end of the tunnel or, um, hope is still alive or, or these things that I personally feel no emotional attachment to. You can't tell me, like, don't tell me hope is alive in a song right now. Right. We don't know what hope means anymore. I I don't. And so I need you to complicate the word hope, you know? So. But that's what they want you to do. Exactly. And they're going to, and they're going to find that in some obtuse thing that they think means that or hope, or hope means that. Exactly. Or will tell themselves that's what you're on about because that's the magic of songs, right? Exactly. Yeah. And, and that's, so that's what I, after coming around and, and really wanting to know, for instance, like what, what songs do we need, um, in direct action spaces when people are shutting down gas stations and freeways, what's needed there? Mm -hmm. And I think, um, that brings up this whole other question of music, music that's used in political action and where that, you know, so much of the music that people want want to sing or do sing at um, rallies, at protests, at marches, is civil rights music. And so, and that's becoming problematic when, when a bunch of mostly white, you know, baby boomer climate activists sing civil rights songs at, at a climate rally, that there, there's also a disconnect there. And I, and I started to get into what, what is protest music and you know, I think, again, going back to Dylan, that those songs, those Dylan songs, they don't, you know, they're not straightforward. Mm -hmm. They're ever. (laughs) And in fact, to such a degree that it's like Dylan against the world, you know, anytime you think you know what he's saying, he's like, (laughs) you know, (laughs) so, um, but this is all to say, I've been thinking about like, you know, uh, going going through all these permutations and always asking myself what what's my purpose here and and is my purpose to be in a freaking album cycle like is that just the hamster wheel of musician life or am I meant to do this other thing and what I keep coming back to is like why don't you just keep doing this thing even though it's sometimes feels very counterintuitive to double down on my own creative integrity just and just like keep going and you know digging that rut (laughs) um but that's that's what I keep coming back to is um is that we actually need we need more complication we don't need I don't need I'll speak for myself I don't need hackneyed messages of 
of old style hope that isn't that doesn't feel relevant for now and then and so then it becomes questions like okay what about this how you know how do we talk about how do we keep it complicated so that I understand that um, what feels so urgent to me what feels like the end of the world to me is not necessarily the end of of the world to others Mm -hmm. or that others have endured their own apocalypses Mm -hmm. already and that for me for me as a relatively privileged white woman to say it's the apocalypse is how is that erasing others experiences of of apocalypse um that we're not as much as i think a lot of white liberals want to say we're let's all get together we're all in the same boat now and it's sinking in the rising tides of climate change that we are that that we are not in the same boat and that how do we get right with each other um, to to become a unifying force, you know, unified enough to really be able to combat true powers of evil. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think, you know, ideas like, yeah, making the harmonies, things that audiences can sing together for people who've never had the physical experience of what it feels like to, in a room for that to happen. Right. I mean, Powerful, seems like right? some, yeah, seems like, uh, you know, there's no missing the message of that when it's happening. What I, I feel like I'm real, I really do walk and I'm sure people, a lot of, uh, I'm sure people can't stand the cheesiness of two yards sometimes or, or my utter sincerity or whatever it is. (laughs) But I, (laughs) but I always, I walk this line of, um, what is it? it? It, because I, I can't help but be, sincere and I can't help but be myself and I grew up you know I grew up in harmony singing I grew up with a bunch of folkies around all the time and the sense that collective music making was you didn't think twice about it like that was just part of life and when we were teenagers we'd roll our eyes you know and be like you know mom and dad are having another you know like here come the banjos or whatever but I took it for granted that that was just happening all the time but now it's it's interesting now that we are i think grappling in culture with with how we get out of cell phone isolation and um and a growing sense of loneliness however we're connected digitally that people are going back to these you know to um building community and um song circles and these things that are have have been a part of me i feel so lucky that they were always a part of me and now i feel like there is this cultural hunger for for moments of connection that are visceral and so and so like something like singing in harmony unfortunately we don't we don't we well i'm saying we again who's we but like for me that has been lost in 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 everyday uh life for me and I'm a musician, so that's saying a lot. We we um, there's a lot of you know. Again, I'm I'm hesitating on we because you know if you grow up in in church culture, lots you know you probably have a yeah. lot of communal singing all the time. Um, many many of us don't. And so how do you how do we bring back those things that as cheesy it is as as it is to say. I just want everyone to sing in three-part harmony, man, and then we'll all be fine. But there is true, there is truth to that being co- connective tissue for us as human beings. It must feel good, though, just to be at a point where, like, you know, as an artist making unconventional music to just have reached a level where you're like, you know what, we have this audience, we, we're doing the thing, we're going to put out another record, it's going to all happen, it's you know, album campaign. I'm glad you're saying that. I'm like, all right, Jenny says it's going to happen. It's going to, right? It means it's going to happen. But I mean, you have this, you, you have this opportunity to sort of give, to make it whatever you want. And because they, there's already people who love it and will, will be receptive to whatever you're going to do. And there's already people who hate it, which is really what I needed. Like, I mean, really what I needed as a total deep people pleaser, like me, please like me. Um, that, that was always in me at war with the part of me that was like, 
I'm going to get you. Like I'm, I'm, I'm going to tear your face off with my voice. So I always had these two things going. And now that, now that I have experienced people truly disliking my music, (laughs) our, and I'm saying our, because Nate is surely part of that dissonance that we create. Um, But now that I have experienced that and I can go, oh, it's not for everybody and that's okay. Um, and, and yes, we here we have enough people who are getting something from this that it's it looks like we can continue this as a career. This It's totally huge. As much as my suspicious, superstitious brain says, you know, this is all going to end really soon. And boy, have you been lucky, but your luck's about to run out. That's always kind of milling in the back of my mind. But it's true. We have we have so much support and we have so much speaking of hope we have i have hope that there's enough there to support whatever comes next and that people will come on the ride with us which is no small thing word i think that's a good place to end Woo-hoo! yeah thanks thank you so much thanks for making so many changes of plans but we did it Oh yes, that was one of my favorite interviews on the program so far, and we're almost 50 episodes in. Love you, Meryl Garbus. Thanks again for the conversation. And that brings us to the end of episode 44. Please do subscribe and leave some feedback and reach me with questions, etc. at Jenny LSQ. The next episode out in a few weeks features an interview with Tim Heidegger. We talk about music principally, but some comedy as well. And I also have episodes coming up with Empress of's Lorelai Rodriguez, Dashboard Confessional's Chris Caraba, and King Tuff's Kyle Thomas, among others. Thanks again for listening. Talk to you next time. <laughs>